Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. It's you here at the last radio hour of the week is here. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, sometimes with one of his colleagues from the faculty of Hillsdale, which you can read about all of those colleagues at hillsdale.edu, sometimes alone, as is today, as we're in the middle of a series on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And Dr. Arn, uh, since I last saw you, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers have been surging towards a national championship, and so I think... This is good for Cleveland that we talk. And since I last saw you, I met Attorney General Tim Fox of Montana, who's had the foresight to hire a Hillsdale man as his comms director. So you are stretching out the network even to the to the bighorn. Yeah, you know, it's getting to the place now where if you hear a politician and he sounds intelligent, you may know why. You're not <laughs> <laughs> hey, on, uh, I'm going to be in town on Meet the Press on Sunday, and it's going to be the day after a speech by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I'm not really expecting Lincoln-Douglas-style argument, are you? Well, you know, it, it, you know we've, we've come so far since those days that surely it must be much better. Than <laughs> 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 Wanted to be a major development and improvement on Lincoln and Douglas. In one, in one time. But I was struck by that because it will all the expectations are very low. She'll touch the right buttons and she'll... Uh, say the right things about FDR, and it will be packaged. It will have been written down for her, and it will be on a teleprompter. And these men, we're talking about the Jonesboro debate today, which occurred before 1,500 people over two hours uh, in the southern part of the state. Mostly people had come from slave-owning states, so it was an anti-Lincoln forum. But they spoke with notes but without a script. Yeah, and see... What we miss in America is a real argument, and and so we do get debates. But it's you know you're you're helping with them, and I hope you and you'll make them better if they can be made better. But they only when they confront each other, they only get little snippets, and they don't really get to confront each other. Whereas these guys go on three hours at a time, seven times plus two, where they sort of half did it, and hours and hours, and they develop a large account of the whole question of slavery and the meaning of the Union. And these politicians, we don't really know for sure today whether they're even capable of thinking questions like that through because they never get to say them. Now, we have, because of one of your listeners, one of your students, uh, a unique reminder that we can let the audience hear what this was like because of recordings made by actors David Strathern and Richard Dreyfus, Strathern playing Lincoln, Dreyfus playing Douglas. Of all of the debates, and we went for this week, the third debate, because right now you're in the middle rounds, right? They've thrown their first few punches, they felt each other out, and they're now ready to go. And as I read this, I said, Douglas is good when he opens this. And I asked Dwayne, and Dwayne went off and found the Audible.com book that is the Strathen and Dreyfus recordings. And I want to play the opening, it's three minutes and 14 seconds long, of Judge Douglas at the third debate in Jonesboro, and... You can hear how coherent his argument is, what Lincoln is up against. So enjoy this with us, America, with Dr. Larry Arnold. Let's play cut number one. Prior to 1854, this country was divided into two great political parties known as Whig and Democratic. These parties differed from each other on certain questions which were then deemed to be important to the best interests of the Republic. Whigs and Democrats differed about a bank, the tariff, distribution, the species circular, and the sub-treasury. On those issues, we went before the country and discussed the principles, objects, and measures 
of the two great parties. Each of the parties could proclaim its principles in Louisiana as well as in Massachusetts, in Kentucky as well as in Illinois. Since that period, a great revolution has taken place in the formation of parties by which they now seem to be divided by a geographical line, a large party in the North being arrayed under the abolition or Republican banner in hostility to the Southern states, Southern people, and Southern institutions. It becomes important for us to inquire how this transformation of parties has occurred, made from those of national principles to geographical factions. You remember that in 1850, this country was agitated from its center to its circumference about this slavery question. It became necessary for the leaders of the great Whig Party and the leaders of the great Democratic Party to postpone for the time being their particular disputes and unite first to save the Union before they should quarrel as to the mode in which it was to be governed. During the Congress of 1849-1850, Henry Clay was the leader of the Union men, supported by Cass and Webster, and the leaders of the democracy and the leaders of the Whigs, in opposition to northern abolitionists or southern disunionists. That great contest of 1850 resulted in the establishment of the compromise measures of that year, which measures rested on the great principle that the people of each state and each territory of this union ought to be permitted to regulate their own domestic institutions in their own way, subject to no other limitation than that which the federal constitution imposes. I now wish to ask you whether that principle was right or wrong, which guaranteed to every state and every community the right to form and regulate their domestic institutions to suit themselves. These measures were adopted, as I have previously said, by the joint action of the Union Whigs and Union Democrats in opposition to Northern abolitionists and Southern disunionists. Now, Dr. Larry Arndt, we could spend the whole show on how elegant an opening that is. But, uh, but what are your observations on hearing that as opposed to what we normally hear from politicians today? Well, it's, uh, first of all, there's a coherent, it actually is partly true and partly false, narrative history of the slavery question in the Union. And, uh, and it, it, to both candidates, it matters very much what the original principles and the subsequent history of the American Republic say on this question. And they both give an account of it, and they both give a coherent account of it, and they both agree that, that whoever is right is the one who's got that right. That's, a, that's exactly why this is such a great debate. They agree that if our argument from history is right, I am right. Right. And, it's, and see, it's, it's so well put. And, I, you know, I think it's half true and half false. Uh, but uh, we can talk about that. But uh, another thing that's going on is a political thing, and that is because everybody who's listening agrees that the country is great and has had a great history, and its founding is great. Everybody agrees about that. 
not true today, by the way, then uh, what you have to do to win is to show that your, your opponent is, is, is uh, uh, rebelling against that, is altering that, is making a fundamental change. And so Douglas's charge, which becomes explicit soon in the, in the debate, but here it's implicit, is that Lincoln has given up on the nation, he's adopted a purely sectional view, and he's dividing the country by breaking up its original consensus. Well, let's get to that. Cut number two. All sectional men, all men of abolition sentiments and principles, no matter whether they were old abolitionists or had been Whigs or Democrats, rally under the sectional Republican banner. And consequently, all national men, all union-loving men, whether Whigs or Democrats, or by whatever name they have been known, ought to rally under the stars and stripes in defense of the Constitution as our fathers made it, and of the Union as it has existed under the Constitution. How has this departure from the faith of the democracy and the faith of the Whig Party been accomplished? Stop right there, because we got a minute and a quarter, Larry R., and we'll come back to it. What? Boy, it's a straw man setup, isn't it? You really don't want to be Abraham Lincoln at this point. That's right. He's he's tearing down our country by breaking the foundation of it. And that, by the way, is also Lincoln's charge against Douglas. It's perfect. It's perfect. And when we come back from break, we're going to play some more. I've got some. This is a great debate. Did you have fun rereading this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's And see, this is it's worth commenting in just before the break that This is the first one down in what they refer to as Egypt, and uh, that's the southern part of Illinois, and and it's down by the river, and there's a delta down there that's shaped like the around Alexandria where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean. And another thing to know is they keep using the word the democracy, and that means the Democratic Party. The democracy. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale also available at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Hillsdale Dialogue on Lincoln Douglas, number three. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. You should be getting in Primus every month. And more and more as I go around the country, people stop and tell me, this is by far their favorite hour of the week, and it's because of the kind of qu- conversations uh, I have with Larry. I ask the kind of questions you would have because, like you, I'm unlettered. And therefore, Dr. <laughs> Arn deals with me gently and sometimes not so gently. But when someone told him about the Lincoln-Douglas debates recorded by David Strathern and, and Richard Dreyfus, yeah, I thought maybe they'd be okay. They're terrific. and. Yeah. That somebody was my student, Ryan Walsh, by the way, who's uh, a famous man by now. He's, uh, I'm getting old, and he's getting mature. He's been a clerk on the Supreme Court, and he he listens to these, and he sent me an email and said, "You got to listen to these things I found. <laughs> They're and amazing. They really are awesome." Aren't they? Yeah, but I've got to I've got to respect the fair use doctrine, so I can only use little clips of them. But I tried to pick the ones from Douglas. I don't want I want Douglas to be defeated honestly in an open field, as opposed to two Lincoln men uh, trashing him later. And we haven't been doing that. You've been very fair to us. You said I think in the first time we t- you have to you have to take Douglas very seriously. Oh, Why? Yeah. Well, because. Um, uh, first of all, because of the quality that you're talking about, and second of all, because according to his lights, Douglas was a patriotic man 
and he, he proved that later more by trying to keep the Union together when the secession crisis came. And I, I think it is his posture here that he wants to prevent that crisis from arising, and he wants it to be a great nation that can grow. He mentions Cuba in this debate. For we're going to play that. It's so great. I, all of a sudden, I'm talking about taking Cuba. I said, hey, I like this guy. Here's, here's the next part of the cut of Justice Douglas, Judge Douglas at the third Lincoln-Douglas debate. How has this departure from faith of the democracy and the faith of the Whig Party been accomplished? In 1854, certain restless, ambitious, and disappointed politicians throughout the land took advantage of the temporary excitement created by the Nebraska Bill to try and dissolve the old Whig Party and the old Democratic Party to abolitionize their members and lead them bound hand and foot, captives, into the abolition camp. In the state of New York, a convention was held by some of these men and a platform adopted, every plank of which was as black as night, each one relating to the Negro and not one referring to the interests of the white man. That example was followed throughout the northern states the effect being made to combine all the free states in hostile array against the slave states. The men who thus thought that they could build up a great sectional party and through its organization control the political destinies of this country based all their hopes on the single fact that the North was the stronger division of the nation, and hence, if the North could be combined against the South, a sure victory awaited their efforts. I am doing no more than justice to the truth of history when I say that in this state, Abraham Lincoln, on behalf of the Whigs, and Lyman Trumbull, on behalf of the Democrats, were the leaders who undertook to perform this grand scheme of abolitionizing the two parties to which they belong. Now stop right there. This is powerful hammer-throwing, Larry Arney. Restless, ambitious, and disappointed men scheming to destroy the country. Lincoln is sitting, what, four feet from him? Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, Lincoln gets tough in this one, too. But uh, you see, this great blessing of America, Lincoln is abolitionizing it. And th now we get a picture of what Douglas is proposing. What Douglas thinks the national consensus is, is that the nation is built on the white basis, and that the Negro, or he sometimes says the other N-word, that, uh, that what we do with him depends on what we want to do with him, and we can decide that place by place. And that's, the national cons that's part of the national consensus. And on the white basis, everyone who's white is free and equal. And we can make a, a hemispheric-wide, great, powerful union on that basis as long as we don't fight about slavery. And, so, and, the, and this was what the founders did, he says. Oh, in fact, I have that clip, cut number three. There you have Mr. Lincoln's first and main proposition, upon which he bases his claims, stated in his own language. He tells you that this republic cannot endure permanently divided into slave and free states as our fathers made it. 
He says they must all become free or all become slave, that they must all be one thing or all the other, or this government cannot last. Why can it not last if we will execute the government in the same spirit and upon the same principles upon which it is founded? That is a powerful argument, Larry Arn. You know, That's the, right. The, he's going right at the throat here. And remember that what he's not doing is quoting these founders yep. on this question, right? So he's talking about what they did, which was, by the way, not to eliminate slavery uniformly, although, by the way, they abolished, they abolished it quickly in much more than half the Union. And there must have been some reason why they did that. And they said what the reason was, and you just can't find one of the leading founders saying that the Declaration of Independence does not include people of all colors. They all say that it does. And, and so he doesn't quote them. He just talks about the effect of the revolution. And then Lincoln has to answer that, see. And, and, and you know, things have changed a lot. By the way, what the factors that produced this crisis are a widespread, but not it proved a majority, change in opinion about what the country means, because new ideas grew up that led to the to the proclamation of slavery is a positive good. You don't get that. But he, he tries to step around that. I want to jump to cut six, if we could, Dwayne, because uh, Judge Douglas anticipates Dr. Arnn's objection and says this. My friends, I am in favor of preserving this government as our fathers made it. And then he skips a bit and he goes to cut seven, talks about a Supreme Court decision. The Dred Scott decision covers the whole question and declares that each state has the right to settle this question of suffrage for itself. And he jumps to cut number eight. If we live upon the principle of state rights and state sovereignty, each state regulating its own affairs and minding its own business, we can go on and extend indefinitely, just as fast and as far as we need the territory. The time may come indeed has now come, when our interests would be advanced by the acquisition of the island of Cuba. When we get Cuba, we must take it as we find it, leaving the people to decide the question of slavery for themselves, without interference on the part of the federal government or of any state of this union. So, when it comes necessary to acquire any portion of Mexico or Canada, or of this continent or the adjoining islands, we must take them as we find them, leaving the people free to do as they please, to have slavery or not as they choose. We'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn talking about the third Lincoln-Douglas debates, and we've been... Uh, grabbing a bit here and a bit there of the Stratham Dreyfus recording of them. And that last bit that we closed the last segment with, Dr. Larry R. And all these Hillsdale dialogues are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. And everything Hillsdale is available at hillsdale.edu. Douglas is saying we take what we want and we let the people who live there, the white people who live there, decide what to do with it. And he's he's appealing to the manifest destiny impulse. That's right. And, and of course, there's 
you know, there's plenty of contradictions in this, right? Because does he follow the logic all the way so that in a, in a state, in Cuba, if they want to, that they could enslave white people if they decided they wanted to do that? Um, in other words, he, 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 there are important gaps in his argument, which Lincoln, Link, uh, Lincoln is extremely skillful in exploiting. And, uh, and, you know, but he is also appealing to, uh, to prejudices and opinions in the people that are very inconvenient for Lincoln. Oh, and, yes. And so in the next debate, Lincoln is going to say both uh, the most damaging things to his enduring reputation that he says in the whole debate, in the fourth debate, and one of the most beautiful things he said, most repairing of his reputation. But that's because Douglas has Lincoln under pressure just as Lincoln has Douglas under pressure. And since I wanted this hour to be as fair to Douglas as possible, I'm going to give two more cuts from him before turning to one cut from Lincoln. Uh, This is cut back to where Douglas talks about what Mr. Lincoln is trying to destroy the government as it currently exists. Cut number four. During that period, we have increased from four millions to 30 millions of people. We have extended our territory from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean. We have acquired the Floridas and Texas and other territories sufficient to double our geographical extent. We have increased in population, in wealth, and in power beyond any example on earth. We have risen from a weak and feeble power to become the terror and admiration of the civilized world. And all this has been done under a constitution which Mr. Lincoln, in substance, says is in violation of the law of God and under a union divided into free and slave states, which Mr. Lincoln thinks, because of such division, cannot stand. Surely Mr. Lincoln is a wiser man than those who framed the government. Washington did not believe, nor did his compatriots, that the local laws and domestic institutions that were well adapted to the green mountains of Vermont were suited to the rice plantations of South Carolina. They did not believe at that day that in a republic so broad and expanded as this, containing such a variety of climate, soil, and interest, that uniformity in the local laws and domestic institutions were either desirable or possible. That's a thunderbolt, Dr. Arne. He pulled up Washington. I I have to say this because it's one of the most important things that Lincoln says, so I have to put in a Lincoln here. Uh, Douglas is making an argument about nature, the nature of places means that the arrangements in those places, soil, climate, uh, weather, climate, all that, means the different institutions. And Lincoln responds to that later. He says, just because we recognize that the nature of the man does not make his rights depend upon his skin color, so we recognize that we're not going to grow pine trees in Kansas the way we grow them in Maine each thing according to its nature. And the nature of man is such a thing that, that each one has its rights. 
that they, this is one of the most profound parts of the argument. And, and Douglas's part is just because the, the topography and the climate and the foliage and the, and the uh, fauna of regions is different, so the way we treat human beings must be different. And what is, what, what's the essence of the Lincolnian response to that? The essence is correct, right? But if you take a human being, they all have the same nature. And so you put one in Maine and you put one in Kansas, and in the end their rights are the same. Are the same. And so why topography is different because it is different sorts of topography. Man is the same because it's always the same man. That's right. And, and our rights do not come from and our, our good does not come from soil and climate, but from our essential nature as a rational creature. And when we return, we'll hear a little bit of Mr. Lincoln's argument in the third debate. Don't go anywhere. America, the Hillsdale Dialogue continues. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. And in our Hillsdale Dialogues each week with Dr. Larry Arn, all available back to 2013 at com. we can't we can't really give scope to all of the things we cover. And today, Mr. Lincoln's speech at Jonesboro, uh, Illinois, on September 15th, 1858, went for an hour and a half. And I'm going to play you two minutes and 21 seconds of it. <laughs> so it's not really representative of it, but, but let's listen to it. And then Dr. Arn can tell you how he dealt with the onslaught. And I hope you get a sense that Douglas was very good at painting Lincoln into a very uh, small corner And here's how Lincoln began to break out of it in the second paragraph of his rebuttal. He says, Why can't this union endure permanently, half slave and half free? I have said that I supposed it could not, and I will try before this new audience to give briefly some of the reasons for entertaining that opinion. Another form of his question is, Why can't we let it stand as our fathers placed it? That is the exact difficulty between us. I say that Judge Douglas and his friends have changed them from the position in which our fathers originally placed it. I say, in the way our fathers originally left the slavery question, the institution was in the course of ultimate extinction, and the public mind rested in the belief that it was in the course of ultimate extinction. I say when this government was first established, it was the policy of its founders to prohibit the spread of slavery into the new territories of the United States, where it had not existed. But Judge Douglas and his friends have broken up that policy and placed it upon a new basis, by which it is to become national and perpetual. All I have asked or desired anywhere is that it should be placed back again upon the basis that the fathers of our government originally placed it upon. I have no doubt that it would become extinct for all time to come if we but readopted the policy of the fathers by restricting it to the limits it has already covered, restricting it from the new territories. I do not wish to dwell at great length on this branch of the subject at this time, but allow me to repeat one thing that I have stated before. Brooks, the man who assaulted Senator Sumner on the floor of the Senate, and who was complimented with dinners and silver pitchers and gold-headed canes, and a good many other things for that feat, in one of his speeches declared that when this government was originally established, nobody expected that the institution of slavery would last until this day. That was but the opinion of one man, 
but it was such an opinion as we can never get from Judge Douglas or anybody in favor of slavery in the North at all. You can sometimes get it from a Southern man. Isn't that interesting? It's so artful. He yeah. uses Brooks, who in a famous episode attacked Sumner on the floor of the Congress and beat him into a pulp. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's just beautifully done on many levels. That's right. And see, that uh, what that means is, see, Douglas, here's why Douglas is in a bad spot. Douglas wants to embrace the Dred Scott decision because the Dred Scott decision rules that the federal government nor any of its agents has authority to restrict slavery because under federal law, the white man, the black man has no rights that the white man is bound to respect. So then Lincoln says, great, that means that the territorial governments, which operate under the authority of Congress, have no right to limit slavery. And Douglas thinks up, a, and Lincoln answers most authoritatively in this Jonesboro debate, uh, Douglas's claim, he says, okay, sure, but if a, if a territory will just not adopt laws, just refrain from adopting laws to protect slavery, it can't go there. You see? So, so Doug, uh, Lincoln keeps making Douglas say over and over, territorial governments can stop slavery, and that alienates his southern base. But the northern base, they may not want abolition, but they don't want slavery to spread, and they don't want to compete with it, and they don't want it in their own state. So Lincoln is building a presidential campaign two years in advance of the campaign. That's right, and the sign of that is that quick as a, wh a whistle, after these were finished, Lincoln started getting the debates compiled, compiled into a book, and he had conducted the debates all along so that in each one of them he breaks new ground. And we'll come back next week to the to the fourth debate. But I want to ask you about Strathen here. Um, how do you think he presents Lincoln? I, you know, I, Strathen, I, I mean. love these guys, both of them. I, I think, first of all, I've met Richard Dreyfus one time. I don't know all that much about him, except that I had dinner at a table where he was one time and found him to be an incredibly pleasant May man. I tell you that when I'm ever asked my favorite interview ever, I always say three and a half hours with Richard Dreyfus. From Is that which, right? Yes, yeah, I know. ran out of tape. I see. And I, you know, I know him a little, and I just, I just think I, I, I've always liked him as an actor, and I've always liked Strathairn as, a, as an actor, too. He, he's, uh, and, and he's, you have to remember that one of the differences between Lincoln, there are two, between Lincoln and Douglas, is first of all, logical. Lincoln, you know, he, he memorized all of the propositions of Euclid, and he talks like a guy who's done that. And then the other thing that's different is, there's a kind of looming moral judgment all the time in Lincoln, and he's telling people, we can't do this. There's a doom coming upon us if we do. And I got to we had less than a minute. Uh, I was in your home after you received the Bradley Award, and young Tom Cotton, the great senator from Arkansas, was talking, and I have been reading these things, and I get a, a sense, and I don't think it's because of friendship, that his demeanor is not that unlike of the way that Lincoln argues. Do you think? Oh, yeah. He's, uh, uh, my wife says of Tom, he's very focused, isn't he? And uh, Lincoln was like that, too. And Tom's, you know, this tall, angular guy. Exactly. And, uh, you know, so he, he and he's, he, he uh, Tom, uh, like, Lincoln was uh, rustic and hilarious, right, which is one of his, uh, not in these debates so much, but one of the reasons people, uh, as George Bush would say, misunderestimated him 
is because uh, he was like that. Tom is uh, not like that, but he carries himself, as you say, like Lincoln. Yeah, this is the, this is a wonderful. You have to tell uh, uh, what's the name of your student, um, who Ryan. T- Ryan, that he has done us a good thing, and I'll bet. I'll bet many, many thousands of people are going off. I could teach a course off of these tapes. Oh, yeah. People should go buy it. Audible.com is where you can get it. Yeah, audible.com. Dr. Larry Ryan, we will talk next week about debate number four. Lincoln goes first next week. We'll give him more time. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll finish up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show. 